everyone, welcome to episode 32 of Truck Safe Live, the show where we and our guests tackle the hot button issues impacting highway transportation. I'm Brandon, this is Rob. We are with Truck Safe, which is dedicated to helping motor carriers develop and maintain cutting edge safety programs. Welcome, everyone. Uh, looks like we got a lot of folks in the uh, various places where we are streaming, so good to see you all and have you all here with us. Uh, say hey in the comments if you're around uh, so we know who's here. And uh, as always, as we go along, if you have any questions or thoughts, particularly for this topic, which is drug and alcohol testing, misnomers, myths, and lies, uh, we're interested in what are, what are some of the most prevalent um, issues or... or um, misconceptions you all deal with when it comes to drug and alcohol testing. Uh, this comes on the heels of uh, an article that we published on our website, trucksafe.com last week, uh, having to do with applicability or non-applicability to uh, of drug and alcohol testing regulations to student drivers, CDL student drivers. Uh, and I thought it would make a good topic for discussion today. So I'm glad to have Rob here with me. Rob, what's going on in your world? Not a whole lot. Just uh, putting together myths, misnomers, and out like outright lies about drug testing. So, Rob sent me a list of like like twenty five of these. I had prepared like five of the of them, and then Rob sends me an email last night. He's got like twenty five of them, so he's ready to roll. Well, you get these at you know from the driver world. You know, drivers used to just sit around, and you hear the craziest things from truck drivers, and sometimes, and it's like, hey, you know, I heard this, and we can't do this anymore. So. Some of those I added in there just because, you know, I know it, I know a lot of it floats around the truck driving realm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of them. Um, so looking forward to tackling those. Before we get there, let's talk a little bit about some things going on over at TruckSafe. First up, as always, if you're not a part of our TruckSafe fleet compliance network, make sure you join. It's free to join. Uh, you can find it at trucksafenetwork.com. You can also download the app on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Uh, this is a social network for fleet safety professionals to get together learn from one another, ask questions, and also have access to all of our content that we put out frequently on DOT compliance issues, videos, articles, podcasts, everything like that. So check it out, trucksafenetwork.com. Uh, what else we got going on at TruckSafe? Rob, I know you've been uh, working on a lot of things for, for various clients here over the last couple of weeks. Um Maybe crash. worth highlight, highlighting some of those. Yeah, what's the deal with the the crashes that you got? Going yeah, we I did a post today on uh, crash uh, pre- preventability pro- program. So um, you know we're doing a lot of those, and um, you know it's it's the typical run around. You got to run around and hunt down police reports and crash reports and videos and and all kinds of stuff. So besides that, it's just the, just the norm. Crash preventability. It's an important thing to do if you're not doing it. Um, we've talked on other shows about kind of the, the program that FMCSA has set up for motor carriers to challenge the preventability of certain accident categories that they have deemed, uh, eligible for that type of program. But, uh, if you're not taking advantage of that program right now, you should be because it can significantly influence your crash indicator score. Uh, one of your seven basics in your, in your CSA score. So, uh, Rob's working with some of our clients now on doing those on their behalf. So certainly if that's something you have trouble with or, or need help with, uh, you can reach out to us and reach out to Rob and he'll get it done for you. Uh, also doing a lot of safety rating upgrade work. I know you're you've been working on that type of stuff so yeah I think we're I think I'm kind of all over the place right this moment it's you got a lot going on 
we do anyway give us a, give us a ring if you need any help if there's anything we can do to help you uh, and we will be happy to um other than that some recent truck safe content that we've put out like i said uh one of which is uh, kind of spurring the this particular show um you can check out these articles on our website like i said trucksafe.com also if you um subscribe to our newsletter you will get these delivered right to your email inbox we're always putting out articles on the latest uh dot compliance issues so the most recent one uh, one of the most recent ones that we did was this one on drug and alcohol testing for student drivers uh, where we break down exactly what the FMCSA's current thoughts seem to be with respect to the applicability of drug and alcohol testing for CDL drivers. Uh, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> the, you student drivers are subject to drug and alcohol testing, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, some other things going on in the industry also uh, highlighted on our website. I saw this come through. Uh, it's probably been a couple of weeks ago now, FMCSA. CSA is making, uh, issued a final rule, making some changes to their broker and freight forward or financial responsibility rules. So they're not changing the amount. So it's still a $75,000 surety bond that is required to maintain your broker or freight forwarder authority, but they are changing some things notably, um, the things that you as a broker or freight forwarder have to have available as essentially collateral for your surety bond to make sure that you're good for the money that, that, uh, if, um, if folks are collecting on your bond and then also some additional protections or, or, uh, automatic things that happen if your surety, if your surety bond is drawn down below the minimum $75,000 requirement, including potential suspension. So be sure to check that out. If you are a broker or freight forwarder, uh, pretty important changes there. Again, you can check out on our website, trucksafe.com. Rob, did you see those changes? Did you have any thoughts that you used to run a brokerage? I I did. And I, I thought for sure that it would go higher, but I mean, I feel like it should. I think when I started, it was like, Bucks. And then it was uh, went up to seventy five thousand. We all thought it was going to put all the little guys out of business. And you have places like Pacific Coast Financial and stuff like that that'll charge you, you know, a couple thousand bucks a year, and you don't have to put up anything. So, um, you know, you go out of business, and you know, how do carriers get paid? So, I th- I think it's a big problem. But yeah, what the solution is? It's not. It's not. Not. It's not leaving it at seventy five thousand. So yeah. The thing that they didn't do, which is not surprising, is address the issue of double brokerage at all, which uh, seems to have become an increasingly big problem um, in the industry. But um, they didn't do anything about it with this particular rulemaking. We knew that they weren't going to do anything about it because it wasn't in the notice of proposed rulemaking that they issued last year. But regardless, uh, still haven't tackled that particular issue. So no, uh, no relief in that regard yet. Uh, okay. What else is going on in the industry? The, the only other thing, it's been a a pretty quiet last month or so, um, (laughs) scary compared to, yeah, compared to, uh, summertime where we saw a bunch of, uh, rulemaking activity. Um, so it's a little bit quiet over the last couple of months, but one thing to, to 
keep in mind if you're a motor carrier that uses your portal account to uh, update your DOT registration information or access your CSA scores or access the clearinghouse, all those things that you that you could do through the portal. Um, FMCSA issued a notice a few weeks ago about changes to their security, uh, web security um uh, platform. So now you're going to, in order to continue logging on to your portal account beginning December 1st, so the end of this week, uh, you're going to have to create a login.gov account, and then you're going to have to use that to access your portal account. This is a multi-factor authentication type system that the U.S. government has in place to secure accounts. So if you don't get that set up by the end of this week, you're not going to have access to your portal account anymore, and you're going to be uh, up the creek potentially. So make sure you do that. That's coming up here in a couple of days. Um, <laughs> did you see that post I, I posted Rob about the, the, the tweet that FMCSA. So yeah, yesterday, yeah. I think it was yesterday. Um, it was hilarious to me, probably to nobody else, but yeah, it security. And then they, they uh, posted some trash FM- that they <laughs> FMCSA's Twitter official Twitter account. They have one post. I think it was yesterday or two days ago, one post about this, uh, cracking down on web security. And then the very next post they have is either they got hacked or somebody who runs their social media accounts mistakenly posted on, on the FMCSA account, not their personal account, some nonsense about something unrelated to transportation. I just thought that was hilarious and pretty typical of federal government, but anyway, neither here nor there. All right. So that's, go- that's all that's really going on in the industry from a DOT compliance perspective. We're still waiting on um, some updates for the big rulemakings that are going to be happening. Some of them are rules. Some of them are not really rules, but they, they are still going to impact carriers pretty significantly. And those are potential changes to the safety rating process. We've had other shows about that. Uh, a significant overhaul to CSA scores and how uh, those are calculated. That is still coming. And then also um, potential changes to the data queue system and setting up some kind of an independent appeals board. So those are all big things that are coming down the pike at some point. Um, I think I think probably in December we will have kind of a year-end review and then also a 2024 outlook show here on Truck Safe Live. So be sure to tune into that if you want to know more about kind of uh, the significant rulemakings that happened this year and what we can expect for regulated motor carriers next year. So We've got uh, speed limiters, right? 29th of so, December? Is that when it's anticipated i think so um, yeah, speed limiters is always seems like it's always kind of sitting out there and then it just never really comes to be but I, that sounds about right i can't remember yeah, what the current status is i looked at the date this morning i'm thinking oh man we got we got 30 days till speed limiters happens but that'll be just for newly manufactured trucks i think right it think won't so. be any retrofitting for existing trucks so uh so don't buy any new trucks if you're worried about that <laughs> Apparently. Uh, Okay. Anyway, so moving on then to segue into today's topic, again, titled Drug and Alcohol Testing Misnomers, Myths, and Lies. Like I said, it stems from some content we put out over the last couple of weeks in response to some questions we'd received on the applicability or the inapplicability of the federal drug and alcohol testing rules to drivers enrolled in CDL schools. For whatever reason, that particular topic 
gained some interest over the last month or so. So we wanted to tackle that head on with our detailed article on the topic on our website. Uh, but it did get me thinking about some other questions or, or misunderstandings that tend to arise in this context. And so I thought it would be a good, a good idea, a good forum to address those other issues all in one place, try and dispel some of the most common myths that we hear. Um, and so that's what we're going to do on today's show. Like I said, Rob and I have both independently developed our own common misunderstandings. I've got five, Rob's got 25. So this is going to be the Rob show today. <laughs> um, but uh, co- common misunderstandings in the drug and alcohol testing context. And so we're going to work our way through those. Rob, I'm going to let you kick things off with, uh, with the first one on your list. All right, I'm not going to start with the first one. Um, I kind of highlighted some on my list, but we're gonna we're gonna float through them. The, I think one of the biggest ones that I get is um, th- there is guidance from your CSA that says CDL holders, um, but who has to be who has to be queried in the clearinghouse? So CDL holders, it's ultimately up to the company, the carrier, to decide whether they're going to do holders. Uh, but generally it's reserved for equipment. So if you are a CDL holder, but you operate CDL equipment, you must be queried at the time of hire and then annually. So uh, that's what the regulations say, but there's, there's that big myth out there that says that all holders have to be queried and that's not really true. So that's, that was the big one that I think gets some people. Yeah. In other words, if you're a, if you, if you hold a CDL, but you are employed by a carrier to only operate a vehicle that doesn't require a CDL. The fact that you, the mere fact that you hold a CDL is not what necessitates a, a clearinghouse query. It's, it's whether you are operating or whether there is a, a reasonable expectation that you're going to operate a CDL size vehicle for that particular carry that necessitates the query. Yeah. And that's true even of drug and alcohol testing in general. I mean, that's a common myth too, is that, Hey, if I'm, if I'm employing drivers that happen to hold CDLs, even though I'm only requiring them to them to operate smaller vehicles, vehicles that don't require a CDL, then I, I still have to drug test them because they got CDLs. It's just not the case. It, what matters is, are they going to be operating vehicles that require a CDL for you or not? And if not, then you're not subject to drug and alcohol testing. That's just the way it is. Yeah, vehicle focus, equipment focus, not license focus necessarily. Yeah. What about mechanics and uh, non-traditional drive? Uh, you know, folks who may occasionally jump in a truck to test drive. And mechanics are the classic example, but maybe you've got a manager or something who occasionally jumps in a vehicle. Uh, I know that's kind of a related issue, but what's the deal with those with those folks? Well, we we actually we had this come up recently, but the. Um, so generally, you've got you know you have we have mechanics that don't have CDLs that are operating ten to twenty six thousand pound vehicles. So obviously that's not clearinghouse related. But anybody that's operating twenty six thousand and one plus pound vehicles on the public highway for for any reason, I mean, there's obviously the regulation aspect of it that they have to have the query at time of hire and they have to be qualified generally, not just by drug and alcohol, but the overall compliant you know. Uh, qualification compliance piece, but there's the highway exposure, uh, highway litigation exposure piece as well. So if you you have this mechanic that's out there test driving, you don't know that the regulation covers them, that they have to be qualified to drive for whatever reason they're out there on the highway driving your truck and they get in an accident, that's going to be a problem for you. I actually, yeah. I think a 
post earlier in the week about this because it, it popped up, but um, company had a mechanic that was operating, just moving a, a class eight truck from a road tractor by itself from one, one place to the next and hadn't no anything, not even a license on file. So um, yeah, if they're going to operate. And it only it, takes one trip. That's it. Literally the first time you're out on a public highway in a vehicle that requires a CDL, you better have a CDL and you better be enrolled in the drug and alcohol testing program. Yeah. Well, that's a violation. First time is violated. There's no de minimis exception or anything like that. Um, nothing like that. So, and, and the other thing to point out, this kind of goes along with a misnomer as well. Could be an independent one in its own right, but is <clears throat> a lot of folks are under the misunderstanding that the federal drug and alcohol testing rules are only applicable to interstate commerce. And, and, uh, I won't fault you for that understanding because that's typically how it works with the other safety regulations. When we're talking about the federal hours of service rules, for example, those only apply to interstate commerce, but the CDL requirements and the drug and alcohol testing requirements are distinct from all other categories of, of the safety regulations, not just because of the, the weight applicability of them, but also because they apply to both interstate and intrastate commerce. doesn't matter if you are only engaged in intrastate commerce, if you're operating a vehicle that's, more than 26,000 pounds or hauling a placardable quantity of hazmat or uh, a bunch of passengers, 16 or more passengers, you're going to need a CDL and you're going to be subject to drug and alcohol testing. Like I said, even if you're in, engaged in intrastate commerce. So there's your bonus, um, <laughs> your, your bonus misunderstanding there. Uh, let's see. Somebody's asking a question here. Jill is asking, what is a safety sensitive job? Is it only driving? Jill, you're in luck because I went ahead and pulled up the regulation here so we can just read it together. Safety sensitive function is defined in the regulations section 382.107 to mean, again, this is, this is always the case, but they, uh, FMCSA likes to use like a thousand words when they could have gotten it done in like a hundred. So here we go. I'm going to read it off. Safety sensitive function means all time from the time a driver begins to work or is required to be in readiness to work until the time he or she is relieved from work and all responsibility for performing work. Safety sensitive function shall include all time at an an employer or shipper plant, blah, 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 or any public property waiting to be dispatched unless the driver has been relieved from duty by the employer, all time inspecting equipment, All time spent at the driving controls of a commercial motor vehicle in operation. All time other than driving time in or upon the CMV, except time spent resting in the sleeper berth. All time loading or unloading a vehicle, supervising or assisting in the loading, blah, blah, blah. All time repairing, obtaining assistance, or remaining in attendance upon a disabled vehicle. These various examples that they're giving here are largely tracking what what constitutes on-duty time within the hours of service regulations. But the key takeaway here and the way that I always view it, and Rob, I'm interested in your thoughts on this too, is what really matters when we're talking about a safety sensitive function is driving time. If it, if you, it, it's driving, it, uh, that's going to be the primary safety sensitive function, but it, it can include tangential stuff, including like inspecting equipment, stuff like that. But far and away, the most common thing that you're going, that is going to be considered a safety sensitive function is driving time. No, I, I agree. And I think one place where it kind of goes off the hinges is dispatchers. A big question that we've always had or that we, we have 
um, from carriers is are dispatchers considered safety sensitive roles? Yeah. And you know, there's there's different organizations in the government. So you have you know DOT, FAA, FMCSA, and there and under some of those, a dispatcher is considered safety sensitive. Yeah. So um, it just depends on on you know what organization you're operating under, whether they classify dispatchers yeah. as or or crew as safety sensitive. So one of the main reasons this term is, is important in this context is that if a driver fails or refuses a DOT required drug or alcohol test, then the implication, the result of that is that they are prohibited from performing safety sensitive functions unless and until they go through the return to duty process. So uh, the, the obvious answer is if I'm a driver that tests positive or I refuse a required test, then I'm not going to be able to drive anymore. One question that comes up that I haven't looked at in a while, but it does occasionally come up. That's an interesting kind of uh, uh, question is, if I'm a CDL driver who tests positive for drugs or alcohol on a DOT test, now I'm prohibited from performing a safety sensitive function. Am I prohibited from driving any class of vehicle or just a CDL size vehicle? Am I permitted to operate a non CDL vehicle if I'm in prohibited status in the clearinghouse? Rob, let's put your your knowledge to the test here. Yeah, uh, that's gonna be. I, I don't know on this one. I would say no because. Um, for non-CDL, you're not subject to drug and alcohol. So if we're 10,001 10, to um, 26,001, uh, you're not subject to you're, – you're subject to all regulations except drug and alcohol testing. So yeah. I would say that – would say yes. Yes, that they are allowed to operate those vehicles? Yes, in a prohibited status from – I think it's the opposite. I think the answer is no, based on this definition of safety sensitive functions. We're just doing this off the cuff, by the way. This requires some some analysis and some digging (laughs) in. But I think the answer is no. I think safety sensitive functions is is broad enough to encompass driving even a a a commercial motor vehicle that does not require a CDL. So I think if you test positive for drugs or alcohol on a DOT test, you're not even allowed to operate a non-CDL vehicle if it's a commercial motor vehicle. So 10,000 to 26,000 pounds until you go to through the return to duty process. Like I said, I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've looked at that, but that has been my understanding. I'm going to bet on that. Okay. Let's, let's bet uh, you're right. No, let's, uh, let's, let's bet on it. And then, uh, well, anyway, <laughs> in any event, we're going to put an article together after we uh, do this show on our website and we will, uh, we'll clarify that. We'll figure out what the, an- the actual answer is. Uh, okay. So that was, uh, the first one. Let's see, let's hit one of mine here. So, um, I'm going to start with the one that kind of prompted this entire show, which is a misnomer or not a misnomer, but a, a misrepresentation uh, that students enrolled in a truck driving school are not subject to drug and alcohol testing. I've heard, I've, I've heard folks say that and um, turns out it's just not the case. Um, FMCSA has been pretty clear over the years that student drivers assuming they have a CLP, a commercial learner's permit, are in fact subject to drug and alcohol testing. In fact, they've got guidance that says specifically that available on their website. I think where the disconnect comes in here is 
the regulations use of the term employer in this context. So in other words, it's clear that student drivers are, again, assuming they have a CLP, are subject to drug and alcohol testing. I think the the more pertinent question is who's responsible for actually testing those, administering those tests. You know, because, you know, if, if you just got a driver that's working for a carrier, it's clearly the carrier's responsibility to have that driver enrolled in a drug and alcohol test uh, testing program. But what if it's a CDL school? They're not the legal employer, usually, of those student drivers. And so who who is it that administers the test? Whose random pool are they in? Who's doing the pre-employment test? Stuff like that. That's the more pertinent question. And that's the one that's where it starts to get confusing. That's why our article is as long as it is on this on this topic, because uh, I think even FMCSA confuses themselves on the answer to this question, because they used to have one stance probably 10 years ago, suggesting that it was the school's obligation in those situations to test those drivers. But nowadays, based on a from what I can tell, the FMCSA's uh, current stance on this is that it is the student's responsibility, the CDL student's responsibility to make sure that they themselves are complying with the drug and alcohol testing rules. And where I'm gathering that that is the FMCSA stance is from a, a an administrative appeal that was filed and tried by the FMCSA, uh, I think in 2019, the, their published opinion is available. Uh, it's, it's cited in that article that we put out on our website where they kind of go through the analysis. It's like a 20 page analysis where they're breaking down their regulations and how they think they apply. Long story short, FMCSA in this context, drug and alcohol testing is taking a different view of what the term employer means than they do in all of their other regulations. So normally when we're talking about safety regulations, like hours of service and vehicle maintenance and stuff like that, the regulations use the term employer in terms of who's responsible for, for managing those things. But they, they define that term employer very broadly in their, in their non-drug and alcohol testing regulations. So in, in part 390, they define it to include even like independent contractors. Essentially what it comes down to in that context, the non-drug and alcohol context is it's the motor carrier under whose DOT number the work is being done that is responsible for ensuring that drivers are complying with hours of service and doing the pre-trip inspections and stuff like that. Those burdens rest squarely on the shoulders of the entity whose DOT number is being used. So if you're, if, if you're using logic, you would think that that same analysis should apply to drug and alcohol testing. So if I look at the student driver situation, it's the school's DOT number that those operations should be conducted under because who else, who, who else would have a DOT number in that situation? Unless it's the, a motor carrier that has set up their own school or something like that. Somebody's DOT number has to be used to operate these vehicles on public highways. So it's most often going to be the CDL schools. And in my view, it should follow then that because the students are operating the vehicles under the DOT number of the, of the school and under their control, essentially, that the school should be responsible for the drug and alcohol testing, just like they would be responsible for hours of service and vehicle maintenance and stuff like that. But it turns out FMCSA doesn't view it that way. They take a more narrow view of the term employer in the drug and alcohol context and say that what they mean in that context is legal employer. 
And because the schools aren't the legal employer, they're not paying wages to these drivers, then they're not responsible for uh, drug and alcohol testing. And so, uh, like I said, long story short, FMCSA says it's the student's problem. Well, that creates practical issues, obviously, because how do, how if I'm a CDL student, how do I discharge my obligations to make sure that I'm being tested and that I'm in a random pool and that I go through a pre-employment test, stuff like that? How do I do that? And my thought on it is that practically, it's probably just not happening very often. Unless you've got a school that's really on the ball here and, and making sure that their students are doing this on their own. Um, it's probably just, these students are probably just slipping through the, through the cracks. Uh, um, that's not to say there aren't, like I said, some schools that are kind of on the ball here because FMCSA does leave open the possibility that says, Hey, even though it's the student's responsibility, the CDL school could essentially serve as a third party consortium for those students. So those students could enroll in that third party schools consortium and then the, the school would manage it on their behalf. But ultimately the burden falls on the students. I hope that makes sense. I tried to dumb it down as best as I could, but FMCSA is doing you guys no favors by overcomplicating this. Rob, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, they actually put out guidance in um, January, 2022. It was um, basically called the uh, student driver role aid. And in that, they, they spell out if you're enrolled in an independent CDL training program, you basically are self-regulated as a student. So you have to designate your own uh, TPA. Um, you have to purchase your own qu uh, query plan since TPAs cannot purchase the query plan. And then you have to query yourself um, in the clearinghouse and under your own account or get your TPA to do it. Um, unless you're enrolled in an employer-based CDL training program and then it all falls under the employer. But it... it as a student of an independent CDL training program, you're largely self-regulated. So it's like, I, I don't know how we've, we've gotten to the point to self-regulate drivers, it, but especially student drivers. So, yeah, my fear is if, if students are enrolled in a CDL school that, that is just taking the hands off approach saying, Hey, it's not my responsibility. So good luck to you. Yeah. And, and then the students aren't doing it themselves. Well, then we've potentially got a big universe of student drivers out there operating on public highways who have not been drug or alcohol tested, which seems like a problem to me. Yeah. Uh, this is that guidance or, or one place where that guidance that Rob was mentioning lives. This is uh, in the clearinghouse. This, uh, but this is also referenced in that article that I mentioned that we put on our website. If you're interested in the full analysis of this, check it out on our website trucksafe.com but uh like i said long story short stu cdl students again assuming they have a clp are indeed subject to drug and alcohol testing um and then the question is who is going to be doing that for them and regulations just put it on the shoulders of the students themselves practically how it should work is that the cdl school should be setting themselves up as a third-party administrator and should be doing it on behalf of their students to make things easy and to make sure things aren't slipping through the cracks is really how it should work um let's see here we got some comments <clears throat> matt says i agree the logic is that likely the only driver's license held at all is the cdl the impact is on the cdl thus would trickle down to operation of other oh he's going back to that situation of is a driver who tests positive for drugs or alcohol on a dot test going to be prohibited from operating a any cmv regardless of whether it uh requires a cdl sorry i missed uh, that earlier matt 
I think where my mindset goes with that is, you know, we had we had a, we had a couple of DOT numbers that were operating in Colorado. So, you know, the, obviously you have marijuana everywhere, dispensaries everywhere. You know, anything you want, anywhere you want to get it. And what we had was a portion of that, maybe forty percent, were non DOT drivers. So we're mm-hmm. operating still CMVs, ten thousand to one plus, but they're not subject to drug and alcohol tests. Yep. So. Uh, we eventually started a, a non-DOT program for oral fluid testing for non-DOT drivers. Even though we didn't have to, we did it from a policy policy perspective. And what we found was probably 20% of our workforce was driving our non-DOT vehicles high as gas most of the oh, time. Man. So it was kind of that, well, they're not regulated. Obviously, from our policy perspective, we're not going to continue to employ them. And yeah. But uh, you know that was kind of where my mind was going with that is, you know, if you were to not have tested for that DOT program, that that DOT test, mm-hmm. would it would it matter? Yeah. You know, so it, that's where my mind goes to. Well, and a related note, I mean, how is this even going to get caught, right? Because if I'm hiring that driver to operate a non CDL required vehicle, I'm not required to run a clearinghouse query on him. So I'm not going to know right. necessarily that he's in prohibited status. Now, the regulations address that by saying. I still have to ask him questions about that on the application and assuming he's truthful, which he would never be. If that's, if that's your, your situation and you've tested positive, are you going to answer no to that or yes to that question on the application? If you're trying to get a job? No. So, but the, but that's how the regulations uh, purport to deal with that situation is they expect those carriers to be asking their drivers that question and the driver should be answering honestly. And if they do, then that driver would not be qualified to operate the vehicle, I think is how it is supposed to work. But you could, you could very easily see how this just slips through the cracks because um, of uh, dishonesty. It, and, and it's kind of like the hours of service deal for short haul. You know, you, you're still, you're, it says in the regulation, you can, you can work 14 hours. But yeah. you still can't drive more than the regulation says. So, but there's nothing in the regulation for short haul that says you have to differentiate drive time from anything else. Exactly. So they don't. Yeah, know. So how's it ever going to get caught? Yeah. yeah. So it's the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, Tom on LinkedIn is saying I think he's uh, referring back to the situation with student drivers uh, being responsible for complying with the drug and alcohol testing regulations. He says, isn't that the, isn't that similar to a single unit independent owner operator? I think that's right, Tom. I think, I think that's FMCSA's intention, you know, for what they call owner operators. I hate how they use that phrase in, in uh, their clearinghouse guidance. When they refer to an owner operator, uh, when FMCSA refers to an owner operator, they're talking about a, a guy or a girl that that has their own DOT number and is operating just a, a single truck. That's not historically how the industry views owner operators. Owner operators can be leased operators who are leasing on to another motor carrier and operating under their DOT number. Uh, I would say that's the more common situation. And in those situations, it's the leased carrier that is responsible for administering the drug and alcohol testing rules, just like that's their own driver. But in, in, I think you're right, Tom. I think uh, for what the FMCSA considers a true owner operator, it requires them to, um, to enroll in a consortium and then have that consortium make reports and do queries on them and stuff through the clearinghouse. So I think it's expected to work that same way for student drivers. All right, Rob, you're up. What do you got on your list? All right. I've got, um, drivers can't take over the counter medications. Um, can or can't cannot. 
but you can actually. Um, that's that's not factual. So you can actually take over the counter medications, and and a lot of times what happens is if it's a medication that'll trigger, say say it's Adderall, and it it causes you to test positive for meth, which obviously you're not on meth, you're on Adderall for what you know ADHD. But what ends up happening is the MRO then has to do their investigation following that positive. Um, and they'll contact you and ask you, are you on any medications? Who prescribed it? What did they prescribe it for? Who was the doctor? Where did you get the prescription filled? What was the prescription? And once they complete that investigation, which could, I've seen it take a couple weeks, actually, depends on how, how fast they can contact these places to validate all that. Then, you know, you generally what we would get back as a carrier is a letter saying, hey, the result is negative, but understand that this this Rob Carpenter is operating under Vicodin or, or whatever the prescription is, um, which could affect their safe operation of a vehicle. So that's yeah, we call these. That. I call them safety concern letters. Um, yep. This is a fairly new thing, I think. I think this came about probably five or six years ago. Uh, where MRO started doing this, um, where they are, because essentially, like Rob said, the process is driver is going to test positive on the initial drug test because of the over-the-counter medication, whatever it happens to be. Uh, not Obviously, not all over-the-counter medications uh, uh, cause a positive drug test. It's only the, it's only the types that would pop positive on the, the five panel test that we're testing for. But anyway, you test positive on that test. The MRO, the process is the MRO calls you and, and tries to figure out, is there a legitimate reason for the positive test? If he's satisfied that the, the legitimate reason is that you are on a, a prescription that's causing that positive, then he can, he can turn that positive into a negative through the verification process. But sometime, sometimes that'll be the end of the story. You'll just get a, a verified negative if you're the carrier and that'll be the end of the story. But other times they may say, Hey, I'm going to verify it as a negative because it wasn't some nefarious thing. You weren't using illegal drugs, but I still have a concern as a doctor for you operating commercial motor vehicles uh, while using that particular drug. And that's where you get those safety concern letters. And so question for the motor carriers is what do we do with that? And um, you know, that's where the lawyer in me, always gets a little concerned because, you know, technically under the regulations, he's still, that driver is still able to operate for you. There's nothing, if you get a negative with a safety concern, they're still legally allowed to operate. But the question is from a risk standpoint, am I comfortable with him still out there operating with a doctor having told me that they're concerned about this driver's ability to safely operate a vehicle on this medication? And I would say in those situations, the an- your answer should be no. You 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 should not be allowing that driver to continue operating with that safety concern letter because you can you you can be sure that if that driver then gets involved in a bad accident, that that letter is going to come out in litigation and you're going to have to explain why you thought it was okay to continue using them after a doctor told you that it was probably a bad idea to continue using them. So I think at minimum, at least my guidance to to our clients usually is at minimum. If you get that type of letter, you need to send them back to a, a DOT medical examiner and have them go in for a new uh, uh, DOT medical examination. Take that safety concern letter with them and get a new doctor, uh, a DOT medical examiner, to sign off on whether they are comfortable with them continuing to operate on their med card with uh, with, with that safety concern. Rob, thoughts on that? 
No, that that was our policy too. You know, I think we'd get these from Todd Simo at High Right, and then it would be like, "Hey, this driver has this safety issue while he's taking this medication," and it's like, "Well, you know, now that we know this, how do we put them out there on the, you know, driving our vehicle?" And then they get in, you know, some kind of litigate, have an accident, then goes to litigation. The plaintiff lawyer starts asking questions about, "Did you think it was wise to let them drive with this safety notice, knowing that there was a safety concern?" So. You're sending them back. We're not medical professionals. We're just DOT people. So um, we're sending them back to a medical examiner that's in the registry that's, that knows DOT regulations. And if they put them back on there, you kind of have that buffer. Uh, Todd Simo may have his MRO office protected, and now you're protected through having another doctor review it. So, Yeah, yeah I think that's best practice for sure. All right, moving on here. Matt uh, Matt brings up a another question here which leads right into one of my on my list here. He says, I "Believe you guys have discussed in a prior video about CBD products that are over the counter but may have misleading labels about THC content which could trip a positive result." Yeah, so on my list, one of the most common misunderstandings in the drug and alcohol realm that I'm dealing with on a pretty regular basis is CBD use among drivers and like Matt said, we've got a ton of content out there on this issue specifically. Specifically. But um, yeah, the misconception is that it's it's okay for truck drivers to use CBD products. And that's just not the case because there are literally at this point thousands of instances across the country where a driver has taken some type of CBD product, whether it be in, you know, gummy or, or drops or whatever it happens to be. And they think that they're okay because the uh, oftentimes the label on the package says that it contains little to no THC, which is the psychoactive compound that causes the high effect. And so they think they're good to go, but it turns out that label was inaccurate. And then that driver tests positive on a DOT drug test. And the problem is FMCSA and DOT say, we don't care what the rationale or what the reason is for the positive test. Even if it was a legitimate use of what you thought was lawful CBD, we don't care. It's still the same consequences. They've got guidance on the books that says that it's it's out there, and that's that's their enforcement policy. Is that if you test positive for drugs for marijuana, and it turns out that the reason was because you were using a CD CBD product, doesn't matter. You're still going to have a positive test, and now you're going to be prohibited from performing those safety sensitive functions because of it. And for that reason, why are we in this situation? We're in this situation because. Nobody cracks down on the manufacturers of CBD in this country yet in terms of their representations on their packaging. The FDA, believe it or not, has not stepped in to regulate that those types of representations on the packaging. And so there's nobody to, to, uh, to keep that stuff in check. There's nobody that's cracking down on the manufacturers of those products. So they are just misrepresenting the THC content in their product, and then drivers are unwittingly taking it, relying on those representations, and then they're screwed over because of it. And so we're, we're seeing some class action litigation pop up across the United States against manufacturers of these CBD products for this, for this reason. And so it's a real risk right now that if you are taking a CBD product that, and you're a regulated driver that you could test positive on a DOT test and then you're screwed. So for that reason, I, um, I strongly caution drivers and my motor carrier clients that until FDA starts regulating in this space, it's too risky for drivers to use CBD products in my view. Rob. Thoughts nope. On that? I had the same, I had the same question coming up, but um, 
you know, I, I mentioned this actually in a post not too long ago because it's the holidays, right? Everybody's going and eating at other people's houses. And uh, I have a friend, Danny Myers. He is a truck driver, but he grows a lot of stuff, and it's CBD. It's supposed to be CBD. So I think it was last year, year before last, he sent me a bunch of brownies for the holidays. Uh-oh. I didn't eat them because I don't eat things <laughs> like that during the holidays because I, you know. Um, but anyway, I gave some to my mother-in-law, who's the wife of a rabbi. Oh, no. And uh, she was high as gas the rest of the night. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much THC was in them. But I guarantee you, had I had, I would have failed a drug test. But <laughs> anyway, uh, so watch the, watch the, what you eat during the holidays. Um, you don't know what's in the brownies. So, yeah, good advice. Has your has she come down from the the high at this point? She did, but she was terribly sick afterwards because she's like she doesn't eat anything she's not supposed to. So, okay. I, th- I think it was just a shock to her system. But <laughs> that's good news. Okay, uh, all right, we got a little bit more time here. What's what's next on your list? I've got uh, hair hair follicle testing can be used for FMCSA drug testing, and it, it was it was one of those fear mongering thing I th- in the driver circles years ago where they're going to go to hair and they're going to find out that I did drugs ninety five days ago or whatever, and um, that's not the case. So urine and oral fluid are the only two approved specimen types for regulated drivers. Oral fluid we can't do yet but it is it is legal as a specimen it's just there's nobody we don't have nobody labs no labs to test it yeah so for now we have urine and oral fluid but the only one we can actually do is urine so uh, that's that's a no on the hair follicle testing for fmcsa drug testing now with that said motor carriers can and many do voluntarily or or uh on their own authority test drivers with hair follicle testing. Uh, those are non supposed to be non DOT test. And, uh, if you test positive on one of those, then you you were going to be out of that job at that particular carrier or, or not eligible for a job with that particular carrier. But because it's not a DOT test, they are not supposed to be reporting that to the clearinghouse. Um, uh, when that happens. So just be aware of that, that certainly, uh, carriers can use those tests. It's just not recognized as a DOT test at this point. Um, all right, let's see. Oh, one, one other thing on the CBD use, uh, it's kind of a related issue and it has to do with, um, legalized marijuana. We just put out a, a video on, on our YouTube channel. Ohio recently became the most recent state to legalize recreational marijuana use. I think it was the 26th state in the country to do that. And so the premise of our video was what does that mean for regulated truck drivers that are operating in Ohio? Uh, the answer is, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get out of having to watch our other video here. The, the answer is it does nothing. Um, it is still unlawful for regulated truck drivers to use marijuana, even if they are in a state that has legalized it for either medicinal or recreational purposes. If you are a regulated truck driver, um, it is still unlawful for you to use it. And if you test positive on a, on a drug test for marijuana, you're going to be prohibited from operating regardless of whether it's legal in your state or not. So just be aware of that. And, and that's going to be the case unless and until the federal government steps in and uh, deschedules the uh, marijuana. Uh, it's, it's still a Schedule One drug on the uh, Federal Controlled Substances Act. So, all right, uh, let's see here. What's what else is on my list? 
Oh, one that I hear pretty commonly <clears throat> is this idea that drivers have up to two hours to report for a random drug and alcohol test once they've been notified that they've been selected for a random test. That is not true. They are whoever is saying that is conflating a couple of different rules. Um, they are conflating post-accident testing, which has some some concrete time frames. If you're involved in a DOT recordable accident that requ- that requires drug and alcohol testing, there are specific discrete time frames within which you have to be tested. One of which is you're supposed to be tested within the first two hours uh, for alcohol, um, but you get up to eight hours if, if you're not able to get it done within the first two hours. So I think that's where folks have pulled this two hours from. But in the random context, the regulations very clearly say that as soon as a driver is notified that they've been selected for a random test, they have to report immediately to the testing site to get tested. Uh, what does immediately mean? It's not defined in the regulations, but immediately means immediately. So if there's delay in you going to the testing site, it is going to be a refu- It should be a refusal, and uh, and then you're going to have the same consequences as if, as if you tested positive. Rob, how did you control that when you're working as a safety director for for large fleets? How did you control that timing of folks making sure folks are getting immediately to a testing site once you've notified them? It, it was difficult because you had it was we had 104 managers that you dealt with at, at like the front line level that were really actually interfacing with these drivers every day. So they would they would schedule the test and then they would notify them. But a lot of times the ball would get dropped. So it was this never ending cycle of training for managers, those 104 managers that oversaw this because, you know, you'd have managers who we would hire, we would train. They didn't really retain it as much as they should have. And they would let a driver know, hey, tomorrow you have to go take your random test when you come before you come into work. And it's like, you know, no, you can't do that. So generally what we would do is mark them unavailable, retrain the manager, and then we would get an alternate in their place. That's not the best way to do it. It's just the way that we had to, you know, under the circumstances, but generally it's once, once they scheduled the test, they sent them for it. And you had managers that would manage it better to say, hey, I know that this driver's coming in and the you know what they have to do isn't going to start until 10. We've scheduled them for eight. We're going to send them to get this test done then then send them on their way to work. Yeah. So, Yeah, the regulations lot, leave it yeah. up to the carrier to decide what is a reasonable amount of time for them to report. Uh, but the longer that gets, the more risky it is for the carrier that uh, if, if you allow a, a – any significant portion of time to elapse between when you notified a driver and when they reported you're risking being written up for a violation in the context of an audit. If FMCSA were to come in and, and look at your drug and alcohol testing file. So the, the quicker, the better, uh, is, is always my advice. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's pick, uh, maybe two more and then we'll call it a show. What do you got? Right. Uh, so drivers can avoid testing by using synthetic urine or other adulterants. And that is not, I w I'm not going to say you can't do it. Um, there's people who try it, but there are, there's, um, methods used to detect this. So generally when we would have this happen and we actually had this happen a lot in Georgia in the Atlanta area, when we had different offices in that area, we would routinely get something from the clinic saying, Hey, Something's not right with this. We think it's synthetic. We want to do an immediate observed uh, specimen. So that's kind of how that 
that has always flown, you know, flowed out for me after that's detected. Um, so I, I don't think it's ever a thing where they actually visibly see them using something they shouldn't. Um, I think it's actually detected, you know, through the process of, of reviewing the urine and the temperature, pH, et cetera. So, yeah, um, I mean, like you said, there are controls in place to, to weed that out and, and detect it. And, and it does get detected. I've had, I've had truck drivers call me and ask me, Hey, can you help me? I purchased some fake urine on the internet and, uh, got caught and, and what can I do? Um, well, you're, you're out of luck, buddy. Um, uh, not much I can do for you. Uh, shouldn't have done that. So <laughs> yeah, good advice there. All right. Uh, I'm going to give you the last one here. All right. We've got, um, man, I don't know. I've got like 20 left. <laughs> Pick your best one. <clears throat> Drivers can never challenge a positive test result, and that's that's not true. It, and it depends. I, I on my side of things when I've when I've managed big carriers, a lot of our drivers were non-DOT. So what we found in the you're ur- ur- in the oral fluid test on that side for non-DOT, you could still use oral fluid, and you didn't have a split split set a specimen to test. So what would happen is if they were positive for that one. Yes, you can do it easier. It's faster. The results come back faster, but you don't have a split set specimen. So once they're positive, that's it. There is no there is no challenge to that. But that has with changed, by the way. Testing, with with yeah. the new oral fluid regulation, there is now there is now a split. But anyway. Yeah. Now for FMCSA, that's not the that's not the case. With urine, you're you're hey, put this much urine in this cup, we're gonna split it into two specimens. If you argue the fact of the positive on the first one, we'll just do the second one. And you, you have a time frame in there. You can't just come back a month later and say, hey, I want to go back and test that month old urine. Uh, but you can file a challenge and then you can go in there and they can retest that. Yeah, this is a critical point. And this gets so many drivers in trouble. It, you know, they a lot of times drivers will come to us after the fact and say, hey, I legitimately was not using drugs and in the test it was a false positive what can i do you need to you you had an option at that point your 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 recourse was to request a a test on the split specimen that that's your only recourse at that point and like rob said you have a specific time frame within which to do that the mro should advise you of that fact when they call to talk to you about a positive result you should you should request a test on the split and if you don't request a test on the split, then you're pretty much out of luck. I've had some drivers try and kind of go the back door way of, of escalating the issue up through FMCSA headquarters. It usually doesn't go anywhere. So the point is there, uh, if that happens to you and, and it's legitimately, Hey, I'm not, I, there's, it was a false positive. You need to request a, a test on the split. All right. Anything else? We're about out of time here, Rob. No, I, I mean I'll throw one more out there. I think we have got four minutes. But uh, um, once a driver com- once a driver completes a SAP program, they can return to work immediately with no future testing required. And that's not the case. So if you if you complete your evaluation with the substance abuse professional, uh, you got to do return to duty testing. But then that's going to lead into or could lead into follow up testing for who knows how long. So up to five it's years. Not as simple, yeah, not as simple as just going and completing SAP and then hey, I'm going back to work, you know, thirty days later or whatever. 
there's there's some testing regimens that that'll follow you for some time and those are going to be observed tests right yep yeah so you, you know the process is you finish the sap program the educational part of it the th- you're still prohibited from operating unless and until you pass the what's called the return to duty test so this will be the first test after you finish the sap program it's oftentimes a, a pre-employment test for a new motor carrier that can also serve as the return to duty test. If you pass that, you can operate, you can legally now operate a commercial motor vehicle, but you are now subject to follow-up testing, random follow-up testing at a certain cadence for a certain period of time. The regulations say the SAP can prescribe a follow-up testing schedule to extend up to five years. And many of them are for a full five years. And they usually, you know, within the first year, there's going to be more tests. And then they start to kind of scale down uh, over that over that time period. But, um, yeah, you're going to be – there's going to be a long tail to it. And uh, if you're the motor carrier that has hired that driver um, after they've tested positive and now that's now your problem, those follow-up tests. If you don't do those follow-up tests, if you don't, if you don't follow that testing schedule to a T, that's a violation on your part. Um, so just realize that for, for that reason, and because of the highway accident risk, a lot of motor carriers just say, as a matter of policy, we don't hire any drivers who have, who have tested positive in the past. They just don't want to deal with it. And I get it. Uh, but it puts drivers in a tough spot for sure. All right. Well, I think we better wrap it up there. Um, thanks everybody for hanging out with us today. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. Obviously Rob still had 20 or so more, (laughs) more, uh, misconceptions that maybe we'll address some of them in the article that we put out. So be on the lookout for that. Like I said, best way to keep in, uh, keep up to speed on what we got going on over at truck safe is by subscribing to our newsletter over at trucksafe.com slash subscribe. Also, if you haven't checked out our online courses, we have several online courses available for uh, trucking company owners, safety managers, drivers over at our TruckSafe Academy, trucksafeacademy.com. Be sure to check those out. Anything else, Rob? Nope. That's it for me. All right. We're going to wrap it up there. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Talk to you later.